Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. After a short hiatus, which included a trip to Washington for the Israel Policy Forum's Leadership Summit, we're back this week with a really great deep dive into the events of the last two months in the Palestinian arena, including the unrest and violence in the West Bank city of Jenin, the tragic death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, Jerusalem Day this past week, and more. To help us out, we have on with us again a dear friend of the podcast, Adam Razgon, a freelance journalist who has written for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Times of Israel, and Jerusalem Post. Adam did some really unique reporting on the ground here over the course of the last few months, including from the Janine refugee camp. You don't want to miss this. Let's get into it. Hi, Adam. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Neri. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. So a lot to get into on the last several tumultuous weeks in the Palestinian arena. Really, I think since the end of March, right, the start of the wave of terror attacks inside Israel, and then you go through Ramadan and Passover in April, uh, where you had the still ongoing IDF operation in the West Bank, along with clashes and tensions, as it were, on Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and the Temple Mound, and then obviously more recently, the tragic death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, and of course this past week as well, Jerusalem Day. So Adam, I wanted to start here. You were reporting throughout most of the above in Jerusalem and the West Bank and Israel, uh, including the Janine refugee camp where Shireen was tragically killed. And we'll get into that in a moment. But just set the table for us and give us a sense of Janine and what you found there when you went to report after Shireen's death. So um, we've, we were particularly interested in going to Janine um, and Janine is in the northernmost part of the West Bank. It was sort of the epicenter of violence during the Second Intifada. The Israeli army had a major operation there called the Defensive Shield uh, in 2002, um, which in which it wanted or it sought to weed out uh, the militancy in the refugee camp and in the surrounding areas of Janine. And um, it was, uh, you know, hundreds of homes were were destroyed. Many were arrested and killed. And um, it was uh, um, sort of one of the, the, the most tense moments of the, the, the second right. intifada. Um, so Janine, which in recent years had started to experience some relative economic prosperity, new malls are, are popping up, uh, restaurants, um, uh, many uh, Arab citizens of Israel are visiting Janine to, to purchase groceries on the weekend, to hang out at uh, hookah bars. Very, very close to the, right, it's very close yeah, to the Yeah, it's very line. close to the green line. And um, about 10 years ago or so, Israel opened or it, um, it upgraded the crossing in the sort of the northernmost tip of the West Bank called the Jelame Crossing for vehicular traffic. So Arab citizens of Israel are now able to come in their cars uh, quite easily to, to Janine. And um, the, the city's grown and, and, and started to experience some relative uh, economic uh, prosperity. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing a resurgence of, of violence um, in Janine and, and also coming out of Janine. Um, 
the some of the the most um, deadly attacks uh, in Israel recently uh, carried out by Palestinians uh, are from people who are from Janine. There's the the Dizengoff shooting attack uh, that was carried out by someone from the Janine refugee refugee camp area, um, in which three were killed. Uh, there's also the Elad uh, stabbing attack in which an axe was used. Um, there were two from a village uh, northwest uh, of Janine, uh, a village called Rumana. Um, and uh, there was another uh, attack just outside Tel Aviv in the ultra-Orthodox community of B'nai Brak uh, that was carried out by someone from Yabid, which is uh, another village quite close to Janine. So it's what we call in the business uh, a flashpoint and a real center of militancy, especially in recent yes. years. And, and and at the same time, the 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 um, proliferation of arms, uh, illegal arms, in the in, in the refugee camp uh, in the city center of Janine, the Janine refugee camp, um, has become more and more of an issue. And the Israeli army has been raiding the camp. Uh, often several times a week. Um, and during these raids, uh, very intense gun battles have broken out between the army and uh, armed residents of the camp, some who are affiliated with Islamic Jihad and Hamas and the um, sort of a self-declared groups uh, uh, that, that in their own way uh, affiliate with the uh, Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, the, the armed um, uh, offshoot of, of Fatah. Um, and uh, although I should say that it's more, it's not the top uh, members of Fatah sort of supporting these groups, it's more groups of people with arms that are proclaiming uh, affiliation with Fatah, uh, which is the ruling party in the West Bank. Uh, and, and some independent, yeah, and some independent individuals who, who collected arms and decided to, to engage in gun battles with the, with Israeli soldiers. And you went there after the death of Shireen Abu Akleh. What did you find uh, in the refugee camp? Take us through it. You, you spent a few nights in Janine. Uh, yeah, so we, well, we spent one night in Janine. Uh, the camp itself is, it's kind of, Janine is generally a flat area, but the camp is on this sort of like mountainous ridge um, or hilly ridge uh, of the city. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a poor place. Uh, you can feel and, and, and see the, 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 the poverty within the camp. Uh, many of uh, the streets are quite narrow. They're so narrow that you can't even fit a car into many of them. Um, uh, people are living in a crowded and cramped situation. Um, they're, you, you know, you, the people in the camp are, are clearly, uh, I think, caught between a, a rock and a hard place. One person that we visited uh, who is a worker in Israel, a construction worker and a former officer in the Palestinian Authority Security Forces uh, in Arafat's days, um, was telling us about how he worries that his children being surrounded by poverty and uh, unemployment and uh, just overall, um, you know, helplessness, uh, but also weapons will, will, will feel lured towards, uh, towards taking up arms themselves. Uh, and, you know, he told us that when he goes off to work, 
in the in, in the early morning, he's always nervous um, what will happen between the time that he leaves to to go work in Israel, which is often at 5 a.m., and the moment that they're supposed to arrive at school. He said that's a, a, a moment of a uh, period of anxiety for him. But uh, there, are, there, are, there are many, many, many people who are armed in the camp. As I said, some affiliated with factions, others not. Uh, when me and my reporting colleagues were there, um, we bumped into a group. Uh, they were in a silver minivan, uh, sort of whipping through the camp quickly uh, in their car. Uh, we, when we happened upon them, they were holding M16s, I believe M4s, uh, handguns. And, uh, you know, they were, were clearly, um, you know, interested in, in, in showing off these weapons. And uh, they told us that they felt like the Israeli army considers them a bunch of sheep in a, in a pen and that they're, uh, their goal is to resist this dynamic and to show the Israelis that that's not sustainable. But I also had the sense that these people um, sort of, it, it made them feel empowered to hold the weapons and um, sort of like the heroes of, of the area uh, and sort of, you know, taking up arms and holding the weapons was a moment for them to, to sort of be, feel invigorated. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, another aspect to this was they were joking a lot. And, you know, at, at times they wanted to, like, they wanted to hand us the weapons. Of course, we, we declined. Um, but there was a certain, yeah, there was a certain um, uh, sort of jocularness to their attitude. Um, and uh, How old were they, would you say, so, this group in the van? Uh, the two we interviewed, one was 25, others 36. Uh Although I'd say everyone was in their 20s and 30s. Some had children, others not. Um, and, you know, they, they described them from, from their, when we sort of tried to get serious with them and, 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 and the jokes. Um, they, they told us they felt like they were already dead and that there's nothing to live for. Um, and, and that's why they're taking up these weapons. And they, you know, they acknowledged that um, engaging in a gun battle with, Israelis could easily end their lives, um, but from their point of view, um, it's better to uh, to fight and to, to resist uh, these Israeli raids into the camp, which are often uh, targeting arrest of suspected militants or confiscation of weapons, um, than to than to just let them go by with without pushing back. And. Were they generally happy to see you and the foreign press? Obviously, they were in the center of a massive international story after the death of a very prominent Al Jazeera journalist. Were they were they suspicious? Were they happy to see you? Yeah, so um, I think there was some suspicion at first. I'm a, uh, a foreign journalist uh, who speaks Arabic, and um, I think in general there, there's, there's a suspicion of outsiders until you kind of get a sense of you know, who's speaking to you. And, and when I went up to them and, and asked them in Arabic initially, uh, if I could, uh, uh, speak with them, uh, one of them responded to me, are you from the Israeli special forces and, and which captain in the Shin Bet are you, uh, the Israeli, uh, intelligence service? Uh, I quickly 
replied by explaining that I'm an American citizen and a foreign journalist and we were able to move forward with an interview. But, um, you know, there's always, <laughs> there's always some suspicion. And, 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 and honestly, uh, I think they were also trying to, to, to be serious and, and find out who I was, but also to, to make a, a lighthearted, uh, maybe not so lighthearted joke. Um, but, um, yeah, so, you know, there was some suspicion, but once we got talking to them, they were more than happy to, uh, to, to have a discussion and to, to share their point of view. And, um, you know, I, I, I thought they wouldn't even let us take pictures of them and the photographer was, was, was able to, and they were open to that. But, you know, they, they, they said from their point of view that they already feel dead, you know, speaking to us isn't going to change that, um, allowing for, for us to take their picture also won't. Uh, so yeah, you know, we also visited the surrounding parts of, uh, the refugee camp in the city. Uh, and we actually stayed at a, uh, uh, me and my reporting colleagues, we stayed at a, uh, a resort of sorts on, on the, on a, on a hilltop, uh, outside the city, uh, called the El Haddad, uh, uh, tourist, uh, resort, um, which had a pool and, um, a large, you know, several facilities for, for rooms and, um, many Arab citizens of Israel were, were staying, spending the night there, um. And uh, it also has an attached uh, amusement park. Um, so I think that as well as this, this large $2 million, it's a new restaurant that we visited uh, outside the city, a $2 million investment, which looks like the Sistine Chapel uh, to a certain extent. You have these uh, imitation frescoes uh, on the ceiling with a large dining. The restaurant. Yeah, the restaurant. It's called Alibaba Palace. Uh, you know, Okay. Businessman from Janine wanted to open up this large restaurant. So you have all these things that are popping up around the city. You know, what I mentioned before, the malls and so forth. Um, and this is, I think, you know, the representation of the, the, the growth that Janine has experienced and something that Eitan Damgot, uh, a former um, head of COGAT, the defense ministry body responsible for coordinating and liaising with uh, the Palestinians, uh, told us, um, you know, Janine is an area that doesn't have settlements around it, so it's actually more feasible for the army and others to permit uh, expansion into Area C. I think it's still quite arduous to obtain permits, but he said theoretically it should be easier because you don't the the 2005 disengagement Israel removed uh, uh, the you know, I think it was two settlements in that area, and there aren't um, other uh, you know, mostly Jewish settlements in, 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 in the region. Um, so you, we've seen this growth, but all this violence and the possibility of Israel maybe having a wider spread crackdown in the area could put it at risk um, or potentially jeopardize some of it um, because, you know, it could be, I can just tell you the day we were at that Alibaba Palace, there was a raid on the camp in the morning. And when we spoke to the owner and we asked him, you know, how does the news of the raid on the camp affect whether or not people come to his restaurant? And he said it, it does. And, and we could see there were, there was only one other party at the restaurant when we were there. And he told us, gen we were there on a Friday, I believe. And he said, generally you have dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of 
people uh, eating at the restaurant and just, you know, news of fighting in the area, uh, in his view, uh, deterred, uh, you know, many from coming. Um, Okay. Uh, Fascinating. Janine, obviously a place of great interest precisely because of Shireen's death. I wanted to get into the state of play with you about uh, the events of that morning, uh, May 11th, and the state of play, really, of the dueling investigations, and as always in Israel-Palestine, these dueling narratives about what actually happened. Um, I think the key facts that everyone, I guess, agrees on are roughly these, right? That there was an IDF raid that morning into the Jenin refugee camp to arrest, I think it was an Islamic Jihad operative, uh, Shireen and a group of uh, other Palestinian journalists went to cover it. This is the early morning of May 11th, a Wednesday. Uh, and in that alleyway, uh, she was walking up along with her colleagues. She was shot in the neck and killed. Um, and the key question, obviously, is by who? Who fired those bullets? Very quickly, I think Al Jazeera and then the Palestinian Authority and in recent weeks, CNN and other media outlets have determined that it was the IDF uh, and that in, at least in Al Jazeera's case and the Palestinian Authority's case, this was a targeted assassination uh, in cold blood uh, by the IDF of a journalist. Now, the Israeli side said initially that it was very likely that Palestinian gunmen uh, firing on Israeli forces in that alleyway were responsible for the fatal shot. Uh, and then very quickly afterwards, Israel kind of backtracked, softened the tone, and said it was uh, investigating, and that it may be possible that an IDF soldier was the guilty party. Uh, now, I think the state of play right now is that Israel still maintains that without the lethal bullet, it's impossible to know really who, who fired the fatal round. Uh, and the Palestinian Authority, by the way, has the bullet and has uh, refused to hand it over or conduct a joint investigation with the Israeli side. So you visited that alleyway, and you were there reporting on what may have happened that morning. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. So um, we, we arrived at the camp, and the first place uh, we went to was the area where she was killed. Um, we were trying to understand to the best of our ability um, what had uh, transpired uh, and whether or not it was possible that, you know, she was shot by Palestinian militants or, uh, or the army. Um, and the, you know, the first thing we saw is that the place where she was killed had turned into a pilgrimage site. There was probably 10, 20 people, uh, you know, coming and going all the time, um, leaving flowers, uh, sort of examining the site on their own. Uh, to be honest, the, when we first arrived, the Palestinian authorities, uh, uh police was actually there in plain clothes uh, carrying out like a f- forensics investigation, uh, but they did this all the while people were were still at the site and um, and were were, were were touching it and um, leaving flowers. Uh, I mean, I, I think if I'm if I'm not mistaken, one of the police officers was um, shining a laser towards the site, potentially to get a sense of where the bullet may have come from um, and the trajectory its trajectory. But this was when probably 10 or 15 people were hovering around it. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly, uh, it, it, I, can't, I can't say we came away with uh, any conclusive evidence uh, in our visit um, that pointed, you know, uh, uh, unequivocally in one direction or another. 
Um, I will say that, uh, you know, if, if she was, were shot, um, by the army, uh, it was, you know, the, I know people have said it's about 150 to 200 meters away. The army was stationed with a couple of vehicles, uh, and then Shireen was, was well below, uh, just being there with the naked eye. I mean, it does look like it was quite, quite far away. It wasn't as close as I had originally imagined. Although um, we did take a, a camera, one of our cameras, uh, which has a, a, a high quality zoom function. And when we zoomed in, it was from the spot where the army was standing. Looking back, it was much clearer and, and, and we could see the, the area around the tree where she was hit. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously there, there are several investigations ongoing there's the army's uh inquiry which is uh you know they they've said for now is not a criminal uh investigation um uh, and you know the army uh has said that it's possible one of its um soldiers fired a, a bullet um towards shireen i i assume that you know the army isn't saying that without considering this is a real possibility um and the Palestinian Authority, uh, which revealed the conclusions of its investigation, uh, there was a press conference held by the Palestinian Authority's attorney general, who was leading the investigation uh, for the Palestinian Authority, uh, said that Shireen was deliberately killed uh, by an Israeli sniper. Uh, and they said it was a 5.56 millimeter bullet uh, that was fired from a mini Ruger 14 gun, which I think would only be used by snipers. Uh, according to the attorney general. Um, and it was interesting to hear that the attorney general said that Americans uh, observed part of the investigation, but they haven't seen the bullet. And the, the you know, Israelis and, and, and the Palestinian Authority, I think both understand that in order to really come to a conclusion here because of the, the scant uh, evidence uh, that's available, um, the the bullet and, and, and the gun need to be matched. Um, uh, I, at least that's what ballistics ex experts have suggested. Um, but the Palestinian Authority is um, is declining to give the bullet to Israel, and I assume Israel wouldn't hand over uh, its weapons to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and it doesn't seem that there's a third party that's been able to to bring the two sides together to to, to make this process happen. Um, so um, one of the things that was said at this press conference by Akram al-Khatib, the, the Palestinian Authority Attorney General, is that they're not going to even release a picture of the bullet because uh, they don't want um, Israel, what, what he said is that they don't want Israel to fabricate a new lie uh, through the picture. Um, although Hussein al-Sheikh, who's one of the most senior Palestinian Authority officials and a close confidant Abbas, uh, did say after the press conference that they gave a copy of the of the investigation and its findings to the American administration, as well as Al Jazeera and um, the family of uh, Shireen Abu Akla. Um, although, uh, you know, during our visit, you know, we, we, we did everything we could to try to come up with new evidence and to understand uh, what happened. Um, we, you know, there are some cameras in the area, uh, private cameras owned by residents of the camp. Uh, we press them uh, for access to the cameras, uh, but were unfortunately unsuccessful. Um, I don't know if, you know, the, 
footage, uh, whether whether or not it ex- exists, would have determined or, or, or been clarifying. But um, uh, we did we did try to get a hold of that, um, and um, you know we we also spoke to eyewitnesses, people that were um, there when it happened. Uh, there's a video of right after Shireen was shot, a man hopping over a fence and uh and and, and, and pulling her uh away um uh so we we spoke to that person and and others and i mean they all said that she was deliberately targeted and and that they had no doubt in their mind that the army um uh knew uh where they were firing and 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 that it was the army who uh the israeli army that fired um uh but uh yeah so that's 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 what we found Right. And uh, really interesting. It Obviously, the, the dueling investigations, if you want to call it that, or dueling narratives uh, may never really definitively be decided one way or the other. I'll just tell you, and I know you and I have spoken about this uh, offline, not in podcast form, but it's worth just mentioning. Uh, I was ready to countenance the fact that it may have been Palestinian gunmen and militants in Janine who were firing on uh, those IDF forces and those vehicles in that alleyway, right? Uh, if a gunfight erupts, uh, bullets can ricochet, they can go anywhere. Uh, militants, uh, especially in that refugee camp, are known to uh, fire fire uh, at will, as it were. The problem in my mind, and maybe the IDF will wrap up this investigation tomorrow or whenever and, and provide more evidence, but the problem, to my mind, is that, okay, uh, the IDF admits that at least one of the soldiers in one of those vehicles fired in the direction of Shireen and the journalists, right? And they still haven't provided evidence or have at all back up the claims that there were militants near Shireen and the other journalists. And I think that in and of itself is the problem. Uh, so if an IDF soldier fired in that direction, what was he firing at? And there was a video that was released, not on the morning of the killing, uh, but maybe even a few days after, of all the journalists kind of milling about, chatting and walking up into that alleyway. And there's no gunfire. There are no clashes down the alleyway. Everyone is very at ease. And then gunfire erupts, right? And to my mind, that doesn't quite lend itself to militants being in that immediate vicinity where Shireen was located. Uh, that's one issue that, that I still have. And then the second issue is that, okay, if there was a, an actual clash and uh, a major gunfight between the IDF forces and uh, Janine gunmen, um, why isn't there evidence or footage of that, of that clash, right? So if the gunmen were shooting at the IDF, uh, I guess in the so- southerly direction, and then Shireen and the other journalists were more south than the IDF forces, uh, provide evidence of of the actual gunfight you know provide evidence of of what the what the militants were were firing if they were firing so again this might be resolved or more evidence comes out from the israeli side but uh but i think those are two major issues i agree i mean the army has you know said clearly in its preliminary investigation that uh one of its soldiers uh may have shot her dead and, and fired in that direction uh and claim that he was firing at a militant nearby. 
But yeah, there's no no evidence of that. We we met with another person we met with was the governor of the Palestinian Authority, governor of Janine, and he was convinced that there's drone footage. He said when it you know, often when Israel carries out these raids, it, it has a drone in the sky to to sort of see what's going on uh, from from above. Um, and you know, he's convinced that there's drone footage. Uh, he had no evidence uh, that indeed there is, but he, he said that, you know, uh, almost 100% certain that, that, that it exists. Um, but the Army hasn't released any, any sort of aerial footage of, uh, of that operation, um, uh, and that raid in the, in the morning. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, just uh, we should also say for the, for the record that, uh, you know, if one option is that it was a Palestinian militant bullet, and the second option is that it was an IDF bullet. Uh, it doesn't necessarily transfer that it was uh, a deliberate IDF bullet, so to speak. That it may it may still have been uh, an accident on the part of the IDF, and not uh, as was claimed very early on a targeted assassination. In cold I, blood. I think it's it's uh, you know obviously uh, when you're when 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 the army is raiding these. Uh, Raiding the Janine refugee camp, it comes under intense fire. Uh, there are militants that are often standing on rooftops uh, on the ground. Uh, it's not um, implausible. Uh, in fact, it, it, it's plausible that you know the the person in, in that car, if indeed it is um, the the that that was the bullet who killed, which killed Shireen, you know, had, had mistook uh, the journalist. Uh, in the in the fog of war, uh, so to speak, um, uh, as militants. But um, you know, we can't obviously can't say with one hundred percent certainty because we don't know what was going on in that soldier's mind, um, and uh, it's hard to know exactly what's happening because we don't have clear video footage. At least it hasn't been made available to us to to sort of indicate uh, what exactly was happening. Um, although, you know, it's. Uh, I guess the army still hasn't announced its final findings. Uh, should be interesting to see what's said. Um, you know, uh, perhaps somewhere, uh, somewhere down the road, um, a third party, perhaps the U.S. will uh, be able to, to get the two parties to come together in a more substantial way. But it doesn't look like that's happening right now. Um, uh, I know the U.S. has offered to to assist. Uh, more significant, more significantly in the investigation, but um, even though Shireen's a American citizen herself, what, uh, I, I, there was a report in the Times of Israel saying that they're not uh, planning to carry out um, uh, investi- an investigation on their own. Um, so it, it is possible; it is possible that we may not have uh, unambiguous uh, findings uh, that clearly point in one way or another. Uh, you know, without question. Um. Right. Right. Um, okay. So that was the, the tragic death of, of Shireen. But then a few days later, uh, there was her funeral, uh, which added uh, real insult to uh, a great tragedy. Uh, as I'm sure many of our listeners saw on that Friday morning, uh, the Israeli police went in and, uh, there's no other phrase for it, busted up uh, a potential funeral procession uh, in East Jerusalem. 
is have these terrible images of uh, pallbearers almost dropping Shireen's casket. Uh, and not only that, you had uh, Israeli border policemen ripping Palestinian flags off the hearse that was carrying her casket to burial. Um, I wanted to get your sense, Adam, from your experience covering Jerusalem. This type of behavior by the Jerusalem police isn't that out of the ordinary, uh, sadly. The only difference maybe in this case uh, a few weeks ago was that it was a major international news story and that you had actual live videos and images uh, coming out of these altercations and beamed all over the world. So actually just a day or two after the funeral procession for Shireen in Jerusalem, um, there was another uh, funeral procession uh, in, in East Jerusalem for someone named Walid al-Sharif. He had been wounded on the, on the, um, in the Al-Aqsa compound, the Temple Mount, um, also referred to as Temple Mount by, by Jews. Um, and uh, the army used, uh, as far as I understand, significantly more force um, against uh, Palestinians who were uh, carrying Walid al-Sharif uh, to his burial um they did come under you know the rocks were thrown at them they did come under some violence um but you know the 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 israeli police in jerusalem responded with uh tear gas and uh rubber bullets and and another um sort of uh uh, sort of you know what they call dispersal means um so it's not out of the ordinary um often you know, you see Palestinians at protests or just hanging out around uh, the old city, uh, waving Palestinian flags, and the police will quickly move to confiscate them. Uh, this has actually become a bit of an issue recently, especially with the uh, flags march uh, that marks Jerusalem Day um, in, uh, in in Israel, um, the day that. Uh, um, you know, the annual commemoration of Israel's capture of East Jerusalem in 1967, where Israeli Jews will march. Through. Yeah, well, yeah, they'll march through the Muslim quarter in the old city. We're going to get, don't worry, we're yeah, going to get to Jerusalem just, in a second. Just to say that, uh, that, that yeah. Palestinian flags are often confiscated by the police in violent ways, uh, even though they're not posing a, a clear, uh, you know, threat to, to, to the stability of the area. Um Right. Let's let's not mince words. It's any real manifestation of Palestinian identity and nationalism in Jerusalem is quickly kind of quashed and uh, tried to put down. And I don't know if I don't know if you know you and I aren't aren't that old, but I don't know if this is always the case. But it definitely has been the case in more recent years. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it firsthand. I've seen it firsthand. Any Palestinian flag. That's raised. It's ripped out of people's hands. Uh, any kind of any kind of demonstration or protest is quickly broken up. So, so I think you know Shireen's funeral. I, I agree with you. It wasn't it wasn't that out of the ordinary. I think it was just a, a much higher profile event, and so people were, I think, rightfully appalled yeah. at the images and, that they were seeing. And uh, I I think you know. If Shireen <laughs> were a journalist for a local outlet or um, were just an, another young Palestinian uh, killed in the conflict, um, <laughs> we probably wouldn't have seen this great attention given to her funeral. Um, 
and uh, you know, Walid Walid Sharif, who 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 succumbed to his wounds uh, a day or two after um, her funeral procession, you know that that received qu- quite little attention compared to Shireen. Uh, it just would have been another funeral uh, and another clash between the Israeli police and Palestinians in East Jerusalem. And and one other interesting thing to mention is that the EU ambassador uh, to the Palestinians, uh, uh, his name is Sven uh, Kuhn von Borgsdorf. Um, he was at the funeral and he was at the hospital uh, where it's uh, where this where the, the Israeli police officers ran into and, and, and busted up uh, this procession. Uh, he told me that he was trying to, to have a discussion and to, to mediate um, between the, the Palestinians and the police. Um, and one of the things the police uh, commander in the area had told him was that he can't tolerate um, nationalist calls or nationalist chants. So uh, your point that there's no tolerance for any sort of manifestation of Palestinian nationalism uh, certainly held true there uh, as well. Um, and, 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 and this is this is also against the advice of the public security minister um, of the Israeli government, Omar Barlev, who's a member of the Labor Party, who I think about six or seven months ago um, responded to a letter from another member of Knesset asking why Palestinian flags were being confiscated at demonstrations. And he, he responded by saying that he gave instructions to the to the police to not confiscate uh, Palestinian flags, uh, unless there's a uh, exceptional uh, circumstance in which public or you know the the, the flag uh, in being manifested publicly could could lead to to a public disturbance or, or disorder. Um, but it seems the police is quite insistent on uh, on moving forward with these confiscations of flags, even though the the public security minister has been quite clear that. Um, this should only take place under exceptional circumstances. Yeah, I think they need to uh, make this a, a more important issue. Uh, you know, obviously the Israel police and the Israeli authorities would rather these types of events be be done privately, quietly, below the radar. Shireen Abu Akhle was and still is a public and national figure. And so when people want to march uh, in a funeral procession or if her family wants to put out Palestinian flags in their homes, in their morning tent, like was the case for the day or two before the funeral procession, and then the Israel police comes and tells them to take down the flags and to turn off the music, then I think that's, uh, uh, that says it all. Uh, let's... Did you want to add anything? Uh, no. I think I think you summed it up well. Yeah, I mean, we could go on and on about that Friday morning in Jerusalem. I, uh, it was interesting to me. Uh, I was just getting into Washington for the Israel Policy Forum conference, and I got in to D.C. very early in the morning, and I'm sitting at the hotel lounge eating some breakfast, and you had CNN on one channel, and... NBC, the Today Show on another channel, and MSNBC on another channel, all of them were carrying the funeral live. Yeah. yeah. All of them. Saw some some good friends, some good friends covering the funeral live, uh, but it, it was remarkable to my mind that 
this this incident, this event uh, made international waves and really broke through other news like Ukraine and maybe domestic issues in America. Um, it just goes to show you the the power uh, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to to still reverberate with people. Um, and obviously, Shireen's death was was a major event. Was a major event uh, and really unnecessary. Uh, necessary tragedy and the funeral itself was just uh, just uh, disgraceful. Uh, I don't I don't think there's any other word for the behavior of the Jerusalem police on that day. Uh, but enough of that. Let's go on to more Jerusalem things. Uh, we just had, as you mentioned, Jerusalem Day here this past week. Uh, as you said, this is a a newfangled holiday celebrating the reunification, such as it is, of Jerusalem uh, after the 1967 war. Uh, we should be honest, this is a holiday only in the sense that it's celebrated by the Israeli right, and specifically the religious Zionist right, uh, i.e. the settler movement. Uh, nobody, believe me, nobody in Tel Aviv is was celebrating Jerusalem Day uh, this past Sunday. Uh, but the capstone every year, uh, or most years, of this highly uh, evocative holiday, as they call it, is uh, the flag march. Uh, where thousands of primarily teenage boys uh, march with Israeli flags, singing and chanting often very racist things through the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem's old city. Uh, And that's very much what happened this past Sunday. Uh, I was there on the ground uh, in the old city, major police presence, all the Palestinian shops in the old city were closed, Uh, a real sense of kind of uh, violence and anger and also pepper spray in the air. Um, and yet, uh, despite many fears that this would kind of really escalate and explode, um, there were some scuffles, some clashes between Palestinians and, and these kind of Israeli marchers, but there was no escalation. Uh, so East Jerusalem stayed relatively calm. The West Bank stayed relatively quiet. Uh, and there were no rockets from Gaza, uh, as was the case, obviously, last summer. So question to you, Adam, uh, were you surprised that it stayed relatively quiet uh, this past Sunday, and that especially Hamas chose uh, not to escalate, despite you know what was a very kind of provocative day uh, in the old city in Jerusalem. Yeah, I, I think more than in the past, Hamas is, um, and this has also been often true in the past, that uh, Hamas is not interested in escalating uh, in Gaza and around Gaza. Um, and wants to maintain quiet. I think that's because uh, the Gaza is still reeling from the last war in, in May of 2021. Uh, the reconstruction process is moving slowly. The militant groups in Gaza are still rearming. Uh, Israel has provided some economic incentives to uh, the uh, uh, to, to Hamas and, and the, the Gazan public to maintain calm. Uh, they're allowing upwards of 12,000 uh, uh, Palestinians in Gaza to come into Israel to either uh, trade or um, uh, work in construction jobs and agricultural jobs. I was recently in Jaffa, um, and uh, I met some of these workers working at supermarkets uh, and other places. Uh, one person I met was from Khan Yunus, just you know, stocking shelves at a supermarket. Um, and in Jaffa? In Jaffa. In Jaffa, yeah. Um, he had arrived a, a couple weeks before and his permit was running out, so he, he had explained that he, he would have to return soon. But 
um, you know, the opportunity to make 200 shekels a day, um, which is a small salary, all things considered, but, you know, quite a decent salary for someone from Gaza, uh, was, uh, just an incredible opportunity. Um, and I think those people really hope for quiet. And I think Hamas realizes that even though this is a small number that potentially will grow 12,000 Israeli, the Israeli authorities have said that they're willing to, to, to increase the number of people permits to 20,000, um, you know, makes a difference in the Palestinian economy. Um, and, uh, it's not something they want to just give up right away. So I think there's a desire among the Hamas leadership, especially that in Gaza to maintain quiet in Gaza, but also to foment, uh, uh, sort of uprising and, and, and violence, uh, in the West Bank, in Israel, in East Jerusalem, just about anywhere else that Israel has present has a presence. Um, you could really see this in their messaging. You know, Yahya Sinwar gave this speech a couple weeks ago uh, where he essentially said that the West Bank is the main battlefield. And he told people uh, to prepare their not uh, their guns. If and if they don't have guns, they should prepare their cleavers. And if they don't have cleavers, they should prepare their axes. And if they don't have axes, they should prepare their knives. So it seems like Hamas's strategy is: we want the conflict and the cl clashes to take place in the West Bank, in Israel, in East Jerusalem, uh, in and around the Temple Mount, El Aqsa, um, but not in the Gaza Strip. Uh, because Gaza is still reeling from this conflict. It has these, you know, economic gains that it's received uh, recently from Israel uh, that have loosened to a, to a small extent uh, the, the very, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, very the, the real blockade, the, the, the major sort of restrictions on goods and the movement of goods and people in and out of Gaza. But... Um, it's it's still something to lose, um, and I, a lot of these militant groups are still rearming and um, you know gathering themselves after the last conflict, and may not be quite prepared for for a new one. Um, so it appears that Hamas uh, is interested in uh, maintaining quiet in Gaza, but stoking conflict uh, in the West Bank. And uh, you know, Hamas in many ways is a, is a challenge for it because. The name Hamas is an acronym. It's the Islamic uh, Resistance Movement, uh, Hamas, Harakat al-Muqawama uh, al-Islamiyya, the Islamic Resistance Movement. And uh, uh, resistance is, you know, in their name. Uh, so essentially the way they see it now is the resistance, we want to take a break in Gaza, but have the resistance happen in other places. Um yeah, and it's a great point that you raise because Hamas, uh, at least certain Hamas leaders, were urging unrest and clashes and for West Bankers in East Jerusalem to uh, take to the streets to, quote-unquote, defend Al-Aqsa uh, this past Sunday during Jerusalem Day, and it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen, and it's, to my mind, it, it's definitely a, a failure by Hamas, no? So, yeah, I mean, they talked... Uh, uh, a big game. I think Hamas had established some credibility among some Palestinians when they, you know, threatened to to launch 
uh, rockets at Israel before the May 2021 conflict, and they followed through with that threat. Um, and, you know, they, they believe that often Hamas leaders will talk about how they change the rules of the game or the rules of engagement, um, and which Israel now has to think twice about the Jerusalem Day March, other, you know, uh, Jewish visitors uh, on the Temple Mount, uh, many of who are um, participating in the gradual erosion of the status quo, which originally was Jews and tourists can visit, but not pray, uh, and Muslims pray uh, there. Uh, and But many, many uh, Jews are now praying and doing so openly. There's even a video of a police officer in uniform praying recently uh, at, at the Temple Mount. Um, so um, Hamas believes it's changed the rules of the game, but here they, you know, they, they issued quite clear threats that if the march goes forward in its, uh, in its normal path, then um, if the, you know, what, what they say are raids on the Temple Mount occur, you know, there's the highest number of Jews ever, I believe, uh, according to multiple reports, um, to visit the, the Temple Mount, something like 2,600 in one day. Um, but in one, in one day on Jerusalem Day, and yet I guess the rules of the game have not changed. Yeah, but I, I think ultimately um, one explanation is, you know, Hamas doesn't want an escalation in Gaza, as I mentioned before. And even though it has all this messaging going on in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and, and really trying to push the public there and, uh, it, you know, its, mil- its militants, its affiliates, to take action to carry out attacks, um, uh, it, it, it could be that the Israeli-Palestinian security cooperation uh, has effectively foiled plans uh, to carry out attacks. Um, it could be that you know the just Hamas in general in the West Bank and East Jerusalem has been severely um, undermined and uh, eviscerated uh, for the past fifteen years or so. Um, because of the Palestinian authorities crackdown on their charities, on their um, financial resources, also their their weapons and their militant activity, um, it could be that that you know uh, has effectively uh, sort of prevented them from organizing something more significant. Although, well, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Hamas a couple of weeks ago, in a, in a very rare uh, and uh, unusual circumstance. Uh, the the Qassam brigades, the arm wing of Hamas, took responsibility for one of the attacks that took place um, in the northern West Bank, uh, specifically at a settlement uh, named Ariel, in which uh, a man was killed. Um, so it does seem they have some resources on the ground, but it could be that Israel and, and the Palestinian Authority uh, were able to prevent uh, a, a larger escalation or some sort of bigger attack that, that could have... Uh, you know, uh, to stabilize the area more on, on Jerusalem day. Right. Uh, obviously remains to be seen how, how Hamas, uh, actually responds to any future incidents in Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and Al-Aqsa. Uh, but at least for this past week, things remained again, relatively quiet. And I think overall, maybe you agree that, uh, despite the real, uh, violence and bloodshed and clashes and tensions and all the other adjectives that we've come to know uh, over these past several decades about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict beginning in March and through the holidays, like I said, and uh, 
uh, in recent weeks that things haven't spilled over, that it hasn't really escalated into a worst case situation like a third intifada in the West Bank or, um, you know, a general kind of violent uprising uh, and real violence during Jerusalem Day or even rockets from Gaza. So uh, I know I know this firsthand. The Israeli government is, uh, all things considered, quite quite satisfied and relieved that it's gotten through this very delicate period, um, I guess, with with minimal bloodshed, at least on the Israeli side. Uh, I don't know if you can say the same about the Palestinian side. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the Palestinian Authority, uh, which, you know, rules certain parts of the West Bank, um, they're, they're always looking for calm because when there is chaos and violence and uh, Hamas is able to rear its head in the West Bank, uh, it really undermines uh, the, the sense that they're in control. Um, it uh, can, um, you know, the, the public might identify more with, you know, the moves that Hamas is making um, and uh, it could undermine their sense of uh, popularity of, uh, uh, of uh, being in control of the situation. So uh, even though the Palestinian Authority is condemning and lashing out at Israel for allowing this march to go, through um and you know this is this is a march in which people were you know these these ultra nationalist um, uh, participants were yelling death to arabs and may your village burn and shireen is dead uh among other racist and uh and and, and, and vulgar uh chants um uh the, the palestinian authority i think is probably pleased that um a larger escalation didn't happen in which Hamas is able to portray itself as the defender of Jerusalem, of the Palestinian cause, um, and in which they probably would feel um, somewhat isolated and, uh, and, and cast aside. Um, so even though we're not hearing that publicly from them in the way that you know the, the different Israeli ministers are celebrating how the march went through and didn't lead to an escalation, uh, I assume that's their, their view. Their view privately. Uh, publicly, they're... They were they were very upset at Jerusalem Day, and well, they have a long litany of grievances, uh, both uh, with regard to the current Israeli government and with regard to the Biden administration. Uh, I think that's a story for for another time. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for coming on this week and and sharing your uh, really interesting insights from your reporting on the ground, and uh, look forward to. To having you on in future, uh, and I say this every week, uh, but this time I actually really mean it, uh, hopefully to give us some better and more positive news. Uh, thank you, Neri, and it was a pleasure to participate. Uh, hope to be in touch soon. Okay, that was a great Adam Razgon. Many thanks to him for his really unique insights. Also special thanks to our producer today, Eli Koaz, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work including this podcast, you know who you are. And apparently, there are more of you out there than I realized, just based on the incredibly kind feedback that the Israel Policy Pod received in Washington during the IPF conference a few weeks ago. As always, thank you all for listening.